We are up to chapter five, Mishnah number six. Asara Nisyonos Nisu Avasenos Akash Baruchu Pamidbar. With ten trials, with ten tests, did our ancestors test the Holy One, blessed is He, in the wilderness. Shinemar quotes a verse, Vainasu Osi Ze Eser Pamim Veloshamubakoli. They have tested me these ten times, and they did not heed my voice. And this is actually from our parsha, parsha shlach, the parsha that we are going to read this week. So this is a mystifying Mishnah because the Mishnah quotes a verse in Scripture. The verse says that God said that the Jewish people tested God ten times, and the Mishnah tells us that the Jewish people tested God ten times. If we read the verse, it seems like we have already gotten all the information we need, and the Mishnah, it's not exactly clear what it is adding. So first of all, it's important to note that the Mishnahis of this chapter have been oriented around the number 10. We had the 10 utterances and 10 generations and 10 tests of Abraham, 10 miracles in Egypt, and now we have the 10 tests that the Jewish people tested, the Holy Blessed is He, in the wilderness. What are these 10 tests? So the Ramah gives us a list. The first one, by the splitting of the sea, they said, well, there's not sufficient graves in Egypt. The second time is where they complained they didn't have any water in Mara. The third time is in the wilderness of sin. They said, we want the food. We're out of food. And if only we died in the hands of God. Then the fourth one was with the man itself. They left it to the next day, even though they were told, you have to eat it all today. You don't save for tomorrow. The fifth one also is with the manna that they went out, or some people went out on Shabbos to collect it. In Rafidim, which is another place that we read about in Parshish Peshalach, they also complained that they did not have any water. And then there's number seven, the golden calf. Number eight, last week's parsha, the complainers. And last week's parsha again, when they lusted for meat. And finally, this week's parsha, the tenth of the ten tests that the Jewish people test to God, and that is the sin of the spies, where they send 12 men, ostensibly righteous men, to go scout out the land, and they come back with a devastating report, and that causes the people to cry the whole night, and they say, oh, we should die, let's go back to Egypt, and that is the 10th test that the Jewish people tested God in the wilderness. So this is somewhat mystifying, because it's simply quoting a verse, and it's not exactly clear what novel insight we are being taught. So, indeed, one of the commentaries says, well, this Mishnah is not teaching us anything new because it's just quoting a verse and therefore there's nothing here. And in fact, if you look at the commentaries on this particular Mishnah, chapter 5, Mishnah number 6, there's almost not a single commentary in this whole Mishnah. But of course, we can't skip any Mishnah, so we're going to have to find what there is to say on this Mishnah. And it turns out, there's a lot. So here we go. We're told that the Jewish people tested God 10 times in the wilderness. And it lists 10 really sins the Jewish people did in the wilderness. But there is a few famous sins in the wilderness that are omitted. So for example, Korach launches a rebellion against Moshe. Mutiny against Moshe. Why does that not qualify? Don't we know that Moshe is appointed by God and thus questioning Moshe's validity as a prophet, as a leader is anathema 
and is a rebellion against God, that's not quali- that doesn't qualify. Moshe is told, go speak to the rock and it will emit water. Instead, he goes and he hits the rock. And God says, you don't believe in me. I'm going to punish you. And that too is not featured amongst this list. So we have something really bizarre. It's collecting 10 misdeeds of the Jewish people in the wilderness, but some of them are omitted. And it's also calling them not sins. We would imagine that they're like vanilla sins, run-of-the-mill sins. It's called 10 tests that the Jewish people tested God. So what's going on in this Mishnah? So there, again, as I mentioned, very scant commentaries on this particular Mishnah. Almost everyone just skips it. But there's no such a thing as a throwaway Mishnah. And the Almighty, of course, works in interesting ways. I happen to have chanced upon an essay written by my grandfather. And he addresses this Mishnah. And he presents a very insightful approach to understanding this Mishnah and what it's teaching us. And I feel like if I just had this essay and I didn't have this Mishnah to go through, I'd still want to share with you this essay because it's that beautiful. But it's a beautiful essay and it relates to this very mysterious Mishnah. Therefore, it's a beautiful time to see what he says. So he's talking about fear of God and faith in God. We know that we're told there's many different ways we have to relate to God. We have to love God, we have to fear God, we have to believe in God, we have to have a muna, faith in God, we have to walk in God's ways. There are many mitzvahs that we're told in Torah of how we're supposed to relate to the Almighty. But my grandfather in his essay points out that if you look at the whole Egypt experience, and as we spoke about in the past, the Egyptians are being trained and educated and positioned to adopt faith. And the Jews, of course, are also being primed and prepared for the Exodus and for Sinai. But if you study it, you'll find something fascinating. You see that with the Egyptians, what they're being told to do, what they're being prepared to do, what they are being questioned why they don't have, it's all about knowledge of God and fear of God. Never does the word emunah, faith, never does that apply to the Egyptians. Whereas with the Jews, it's all about emunah, it's all about faith. So for example, chapter 7, verse 5, Let the Egyptians know that I am God. That same chapter, verse 17, Ko amar Hashem bezos Teda, so said God, with this you shall know, you shall achieve knowledge, Kiani Hashem, that I am Hashem. 14.4 I will punish Pharaoh and all his legions, and Egypt will know that I am Hashem. Similarly, fear of God. In chapter 8 of Exodus, you and your servants have yet to accomplish fear of God. So this is an interesting idea that with the Egyptians, knowledge of God and fear of God is what is happening, is what is being changed within them. 
And it's important to note, my grandfather says, that this is not only the Egyptians, it's all the nations. If you look at the song at the sea, Az Yashir, it says, the people here, they tremble, agony grips the dwellers of uh, of Palashes. It talks about the people of Edom and Moab. They're all trembling. They're dismayed. They're terrified. Terror and dread descend upon them. Again, it's all about knowledge. You know something and that terrifies you. Even Amalek, the arch nemesis of the Jewish people, what is expected of them or what they show a deficiency in is fear. Velo yare Elohim. What is so astonishing about this nation, Amalek, is that they did not fear God. Everyone after the Exodus feared God, besides for the Amalekites. In the story of Abraham and Sarah, when Sarah is kidnapped, again, we see the concept where Abraham says, the reason why I said she was my sister is because I said there's no fear of God in this place. In the future, Messianic era, we know that there's going to be universal knowledge of God and universal fear of God. But Emunah does not apply to the Gentiles in this future time. So we say in the prayer of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, Tain pachtecha, place your fear upon the nations. Let them all fear you. And let them all know that you are the master. You are in charge. You have all the ability. So my grandfather points out that nowhere does it talk about faith amongst the nations. It's all about fear. Whereas the Jewish people, the whole dialogue with the Jews, with the Exodus, is about emunah, which was which we're going to translate as faith. So for example, Moshe, when he is being instructed by God to go to Egypt, and he's objecting, he doesn't want to go, he says, Vehaim lo ya'aminuli. They won't believe in me. Ya'aminu, believe. And Moshe goes and presents the signs to the elders of Israel. And indeed, they do believe. And not just by the Exodus. Abraham is lauded because he, Vaya'amin Abraham had emunah. So we see these two ways to relate to God. And it's interesting that the Jewish people, and certainly with the Exodus experience, what's being developed there is Amunah, whereas with by the rest of the nations, it's a concept of Yira, which means fear of God. Now, if you were to ask me, of these two emotions, faith and fear, which one is a more developed, which one's a more advanced level of a relationship with God? I would have said, well... To believe in God, that's great. But to actually have fear, that means you're taking it really seriously. Your fear, your trembling of God. In our heads, faith is a more basic level. It's almost like the foundation. And if you have faith, you believe in God. Well, then to have fear of God is a much higher level. It means that this belief in God actually penetrates your emotions and it changes how you behave. So fear of God, we would say, is a higher level than faith. The basic level, emunah, I believe, 13 principles of faith, it's almost like a, like, like a, like the baseline of, of everything. If someone has fear of God, well, that's a very high level, much higher. That's what we would have imagined. 
But it turns out that the word emunah is a very pliable word. When we're talking about the emunah of the Jewish people, it's a much higher level than fear. How so? If you look at the splitting of the sea, in the run-up to the splitting of the sea, it says, Vayiru ames Hashem, the nation feared God, and then Vayaminu, and then they believed in God. We think of faith in God being a segue to fear of God. For the Jewish people, it was the opposite. First came fear, and on top of that came Emunah, came faith. So what this tells us is that the emunah that we're talking about is a higher level than fear of God. If someone is trembling before God, that shows a tremendous level of understanding of the, the presence and the, the omnipotence and the omniscience of God. But there's something even higher than that. And that's emunah. And perhaps there's a very basic level what we would call faith. And then you have lower level faith, and then you have fear of God, and there's a much higher level called emunah. What's the difference here? Fear of God means to know that God exists and to have that affect your behavior. When someone has an appreciation of God, and someone says, oh my, oh my, i got to make sure that all my deeds are in line with the will of the Almighty and they're going to withhold from things that they know are against the will of God, it's a very high level. But emunah is something entirely different. Emunah means that your interface with the world is solely that of faith. Everything else that's not God is only viewed by you, the person of Amunah, as a creation of God, as almost a facade of godly power. Nothing in the world has any individual validity and any individual reality. The only reality in the world is God. That's it. Nothing else carries any weight. Our sages tell us that Noah had only a little bit of Munah. Now, the problem is, is that Noah is very righteous. He's called a tzaddik. According to the Midrash, he spent 120 years building his boat. But he only had a little bit of Emunah. Why? What is deficient in Noah's faith? What's deficient in Noah's faith is that when God told him to go into the ark, and Noah went into the ark. The verse in chapter 7 of Genesis says that Noah went in because it started raining. The fact that water was coming down from heaven actually still mattered in Noah's eyes. A person of complete faith, rain doesn't matter. It's only the will of God. God tells you to go in. The only reason why you go into the boat is only because God tells you. The fact that Noah still believed that rain matters at all, that shows that his interface with the world still had something called meteorology and rain and clouds. 
And therefore, he had only a little bit of emunah. By contrast, my grandfather brings the story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. We might have mentioned the story in the past. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is the leader of the Jews in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is surrounded by a siege of the Romans. And things in the city are very desperate. And people are dying. And there's so many factions in the city, they're all fighting. And Rabbi Yochum Zakkai decides he wants to go negotiate directly with the Roman general overseeing the siege. His name was Vespasian, soon to be Roman emperor. So he smuggles himself out. They pretend that he died, actually. He feigns his own death. He's put into a coffin. They smuggle him out. And then he goes to the Roman camp and presents himself to Vespasian. And he says to him, peace be unto you, O king. He addresses him as if he were the emperor. As if he's ready to Caesar. But he's just a general. So Vespasian tells him, I'm going to execute you. Because that's against the rules to call the general or anyone but the emperor, but the Caesar, call him the king. So he says to the no, no, you're a king. Because you're destroying the temple. And the verse in scripture says that a king will destroy the temple. And therefore you're a king. I don't care that you're overseeing an army and you're overseeing a siege and there's a, a king in Rome. You're a king because that's what the Torah says. Don't tell me you're a general, you're a king. And as they're talking, a messenger comes from Rome and tells Vespasian, oh, the emperor died and you were nominated to become the replacement. And because of that interaction, the Talmud tells us he was so impressed with Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai who had this clairvoyant prescience to know that he's talking to a king. He says, I'll grant you several requests and he gets the city of Yavne to be spared and that's where the Sanhedrin goes after the temple's destroyed. But if you look at this story, you see something very fascinating. When Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai sees a person he may be dressed like a general. He may be functioning like a general. He may have a certain amount of logos or insignia on his, however they dressed, that gave the physical appearance of a general. But his sole interface with the world was Torah. So if he sees a person about to destroy the temple, he sees a king because that's what the Torah says about it. That is what we're talking about when we see when we say Emunah. And we're not just not just like this belief in God. Oh, are you a believer? I'm not an atheist, right? That's a very low level of faith. The degree to which a person begin, begins to interface with the world, that God is the only thing that matters, and nothing else has any power or any weight, that is where the person starts getting a little bit of Emunah, maybe a little bit more. And even Noah, who had Emunah, it wasn't complete. So what this tells us is like this. There are gradients of faith, gradients of Emunah. The very low level of Emunah is beneath the concept of fear of God. And the higher level of Emunah is way higher than the fear of God. Fear of God means you behave based upon what you know to be true. 
faith, God's watching, everything that I do is seen by God, everything I say is heard by God, everything is recorded, I want to make sure I do what's right, I'm going to make sure I live my life in line with this principle. That is fear of God. Emunah is an entirely different level. The only thing that matters is God. The only reality is God. Everything else is just a tool, an implement in the hands of God, in the hands of God. And here's where we're going to bring it home. Talmud tells us that the Jewish people, when they left Egypt, they were still people who had only a little bit of emunah. Talmud in two places, book of Psachim, page 118b, the book of Arachem, page 15a, Yardei Hayam Katne Amanahayu. Those who descended down to the sea, the sea split, they were still, they still only had a little bit of Amunah. A sea, the sea split. What does that show you? It shows you that only God's in control. Gravity doesn't matter. Water doesn't matter. The sea doesn't matter. The seabed doesn't matter. Only God is the force that matters. And they left the sea and they still didn't have full Amunah. How was this diminished level of Amunah? Or how was this minor level of Amunah manifested? They said, oh, the Egyptians didn't die. We left over here and they left over there. And the fact that we don't see them doesn't mean that they're actually dead. And therefore, God had to sweep the Egyptians out of the water and let them see, to, to have them all dead on the beach. And that's, and that's, and that's how the Jewish people got to a higher level of Amunah. So the Talmud says, and they have this high level of Amunah, and how long does it last? Three days after the splitting of the sea, they end up in the city of Mara, and they're complaining that they don't have any water. Now granted, they've gone three days without any water. So that demands a lot of Amunah to, to not open your mouth for three days. Try going three days without water, or even a day without water. They manage three days without water without complaining. But after three days, they started complaining. And that still showed that their Amunah maybe wasn't complete. For the next 40 years, the Jewish people were striving to fill the gaps of Amunah that they had. And how did they try to fill the gaps of Amunah that they had? By testing God. Normally, it's the other way around. God tests us. But the Jewish people, their objective, their spiritual agenda was they wanted to have complete emunah like Abraham. And they got a lot of it in Egypt. And they got a lot of it with the Exodus and with the miracles. But it wasn't quite complete. And each one of these 10 tests, not sins, 10 tests, were the nation trying to figure out if they can learn more and they could see more about God's total power. We're in the wilderness. There's no food. We're going to test God. Can he make manna drop from heaven? That wasn't a vanilla sin. That wasn't the run-of-the-mill sin. That was the nation trying to beef up, to buttress their amuna. And all the ten Sins, if you will, were really tests. The Jewish people trying to plug in the gaps, to fill in the holes of our emunah. 
And the way they did it is by testing God, which is a very advanced tactic to try to get a Munah. And of course, they're called to task over this. They're punished for it. But from their shame, from their misdeed, we see their greatness. This is a nation that they have basic faith in the bank. They have fear of God also in the bank. And they have a minor level of emunah as well. But they are striving to try to get the highest level of emunah. And they use these very advanced tactics, very questionable tactics maybe, because after all, the Torah denigrates these tactics. They use that to try to get full emunah. So what this means for us is, first of all, we read the stories of Exodus and Leviticus and and Numbers, of course, and even Deuteronomy. We read this as a, a simple nation making simple blunders. But I think this framing really casts the whole 40 years of the wilderness in a new light. This is almost the completion of what we achieved via the Exodus. It wasn't done. We needed 40 years to be ready for the promised land, quite literally, to be able to have complete Emunah when we walk into the land. And for us, we believe that we're on the doorstep of the Messianic era. There's a concept called Itvasa de Meshicha, which means that this is the last hurrah. This is the last era before Messiah. When Messiah is going to come, I have my suspicions. I'm not going to share it with you. I apologize for that. But we don't know. You have to ask someone who's a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I don't really know. And we cannot, as non-prophets, point to specific events and say, oh, this is a harbinger, this is a harbinger of Messiah. We don't know that. But what we do know for sure is that we are in the throes, the birth pains, if you will, of the Messianic era. And the thing that we have to focus on, one of the major things we focus on, is this idea. The recognition that we have no one to rely on but God. Talmud tells us, in the time before the Messianic era, things are going to get really, really bad. And the only lifeline that we have is that we can rely on God. And just like the Jewish people, our antecedents, in the wilderness, they spent the time trying to grasp or accomplish or achieve the highest level of Amunah, our objective is to do the same. And how do we do that? What's the first step, shall we say, of doing that? Is the simple acknowledgement of the concept, the simple recognition of the concept, the Almighty actually exists. Basic, basic faith, and it's real. And that should engender fear, which means that my behavior must be compliant with that principle which is a much higher level. It's not just, oh, I acknowledge it's true. I'm actually going to change my behavior and live my life accordingly. And then we can start thinking about this higher level, this much higher level, where we tap into this power of emunah, where we start viewing all of this reality that's not God as being a facade, as being not real, 
as being maybe even an obstacle for Aramuna. The rain is not real. The armies are not real. The fact that the Canaanite nations are so mighty is not real. With God and reliance on God, nothing stops us. I thank you for listening. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Please send me your questions, your comments, and your feedback. It is a great pleasure to talk to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas.